Do you lock your doors at night? I assume that you do. If you ever hear a knock in the middle of the night at the door or hear someone ringing the doorbell, do you open the door without first looking to see who's there? You may not even open it if you do look and see who's there and know who they are. The point of these questions is that we just don't let anyone come into our house, do we? We lock our doors at night. If someone knocks late at night, especially, we're going to look to see who's there. Why? Because we don't just permit anyone and everyone into our homes and into our presence. And I wonder if you realize that so it is with God. So it is with God. You may be surprised to learn that not everyone is allowed into His presence to abide with Him, to dwell in His holy presence. Now, we're going to look at a psalm today, Psalm 15. If you have a Bible, turn there. We'll read it in a moment. It's a very brief psalm. There's only five verses, but it's interesting. Many people believe that this psalm is what is called an entry psalm. You know, when you hear this, dun, 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 you think of what? You think of a wedding, right? A wedding procession. The bride is about to enter and everyone turns around and looks, right? It's an entry song that is so reminiscent to us and, and we, we recognize it. Well, there are many that believe that this is like an entry psalm. It was something that was spoken, read, perhaps even sung as people were making their entry. Now, not an entry into a wedding, but as they were entering into the temple area. When they were coming to that place where the temple was built and made and created for people to come, that perhaps this psalm was used as people were making their way to the temple. There's some that think that there were the priests who would ask and speak what is found in this psalm to people as they started to approach the temple area. In fact, there are some who believe because it's David who wrote this psalm, it's a psalm of David, you may see in your Bible there, that he actually wrote this psalm around the time of 2 Samuel 6, verse 12 through 19. Now, do you remember that? Maybe not by just the reference, but I bet you remember a little bit of the story. Do you remember the story when there was a man whose name was Yuza who touched the ark and God struck him dead? You remember that story? And David was displeased that God killed this man for touching the ark. And everyone was afraid, David himself, to touch the ark or to be around it. So remember, they let it sit for three months. It was in a man named Obed-Eden's property. And God blessed his property for three months. Now you remember now the ark was a piece of furniture... But it was more than that. It symbolized or represented God's presence. And after three months, David and the people brought it away from Obed-Edom's home back to Jerusalem. And perhaps, well, we don't know for sure, but it could be that David wrote this psalm as they made their way, bringing this ark, which symbolized God's presence, to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, regardless of the exact time and location and reason for this psalm, it really addresses a vital question. 
And you're going to find some similarities in this psalm to the Ten Commandments, which you probably are familiar with, and also the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament. Look at it with me. Psalm 15, verse 1. Lord, it's the word for Yahweh, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned or despised, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt, and by the way, sweareth doesn't mean cursing, right? Like a curse word. It means an oath or a promise. So he that makes a promise or an oath to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, which is an old way of saying he doesn't, he doesn't charge interest, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. So here's the, the psalm. It starts with a question, and it gives about 10 or 11 answers. It's a psalm of David where he asks one of the most significant questions in all of life. Who is permitted to be in the presence of the Lord? Who is allowed to abide and dwell in God's presence? And we find the answers here, at least some of the answers. One of the most significant questions in all of life, who is permitted to be in the presence of the Lord? And Psalm 15 gives us an answer. So what I want to do today is I want to look at three main characteristics of the person who's permitted into the presence of the Lord. And in each of those main characteristics, there are little sub-characteristics, we can say. And it's kind of easy to follow. So we're going to talk about this person's walk. We're going to talk about this person's works. And we're going to talk about this person's words. Those are the three main categories. Who is going to dwell and be permitted in the presence of the Lord? David talks about this person's walk, works, and words. Well, let's look first of all at the walk. Who's permitted in the presence of the Lord? The one who walks or lives blamelessly. In my translation, it says, He that walketh uprightly. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have a slouch when he walks. It's used in a way to talk about his lifestyle, that he walks in a way that's blameless. This is the first major characteristic. The one who will be permitted into God's presence is the one who walks blamelessly. Now, walking in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is often used to describe our lifestyle. You ever been around someone, they just kind of walk funny. Like they got a funny walk, right? They just walk a little strange or, you know... Uh, it's not talking about that kind of walking, not your literal walking, how you walk to your car or walk inside your house, but the way you live, your conduct, your behavior. But what does it mean to walk uprightly, to walk blamelessly? Well, the word blameless, it's the same word that's used to describe how that the sacrifices that the people of God in the Old Testament had to offer, they were to be without spot, without blemish. They were to be blameless. 
without blemish. In fact, you can read about that in Exodus 12, verse 5, or Leviticus 3, 1. Exodus 12, 5, Leviticus 3, 1. Talk about how they offered a lamb one year without blemish, without spot. The word means complete or whole. Now, I love what one man said. His name is Jared Wilson. Gerald Wilson, excuse me. He said, it does not mean sinless perfection. It doesn't mean that you have to have never sinned ever. Well, that's not what it means because none of us could ever qualify if that were the case. But it means a way of life that is whole by virtue of consistent dedication to the way of the Lord. Now, notice there are some specific examples of walking blamelessly. In verse 4, it says, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned or despised. It's despising a vile person. Now, and then it says in contrast that honors them that, that fear the Lord. There's a contrast here. Now, t- does that seem strange? It does a little bit to say that a person who walks blamelessly actually despises vile people. Like that's a, a positive attribute about this person is that they despise vile people. Now, I think it may seem strange to say that part of a godly attribute is to despise someone. But you must understand that he's talking about here a vile person is what we would call a reprobate. Someone who has been rejected by God because he or she is just determined to do evil and is blatantly and flagrantly living out in wickedness. And listen to what a man named Willem Van Gerem said about the vile person. He says, this is someone who knows no other way than evil and mischief. He is not the occasional offender who needs restoration. Instead, he is determined to do evil. That's what the the blameless person despises, is that person. In other words, the one who walks blamelessly is on God's side. He despises what God despises, and he honors what God honors. He's not associated with, he's not in allegiance with anyone who is vile. He honors the righteous. He doesn't honor the vile. But notice there's another example of of someone who walks blamelessly. Look at chapter 15, verse 4. It says this, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, he's despised, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. Then look at this last part of verse 4. Here's another way in which he walks blamelessly. He sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. What's that mean? It means that he keeps his word. She keeps her word, even if it costs financially or materially. Here is someone who doesn't go back on their word just to protect their own skin or their own interests. This is a person who would rather take a loss than break a promise. It's a blameless walk. I wonder about our lifestyle. I wonder about our behavior. Do we live blamelessly? Again, not perfect, but a life that's whole, a life that's consistent, a life that's dedicated to the Lord. 
I wonder also, do we despise what God despises? I'll never forget, it was about probably 10 years ago, maybe a little more than that now. I was spending some time with a pastor that I have great respect for, and we were, he was praying one night. And I remember him saying this, Lord, help us to hate what you hate and to love what you love. And I've thought about that many times. Lord, help me to hate the things that you hate and love the things that you love. Does that describe us? That we despise what God despises, that we, we honor what God honors. I wonder, do you associate yourselves closely with people who flagrantly and blatantly rebel against God's Word? Now, we have to balance this out because we're called to reach people, all kinds of people, right? We want to do that. We're not to isolate ourselves in some kind of Christian bubble where we never interact with anyone who's not a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. But you understand there's a big difference in trying to reach lost people and then living like them and with them and being in allegiance with them. What did Paul say? Remember, what, what agreement has light with darkness? What, what, what relationship has Christ with demons? He's making a distinction there. And, and let me just give you one practical way that we can avoid this. Don't date or marry someone who's not a committed Christian. I mean, I don't know how many times I've talked to somebody who's thinking about dating or getting in a serious relationship with someone, and, well, this person's not a Christian. This person doesn't love the Lord. Well, that's one way in which we can put this to practice to say, no, I want to honor those that fear the Lord. I want to be in close association and allegiance with those who honor the Lord. A blameless life. Real quickly, I want you to think about Jesus. And He who did live the only flawless and perfectly blameless life. Do you remember what He said to His enemies? John 8, 46. Which of you can convict me of sin? I mean, His enemies were working to have Him crucified. They were looking for any possible accusation that would stick against Him. And they could find nothing. Remember, even Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. He was completely blameless. In fact, that's one of the reasons I believe that you find it repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament, that when you bring an offering to the Lord, it had to be without blemish, without spot. You couldn't bring to God the worst lamb in all of your possessions. Bring uh, the best of your flocks and herds, blameless and without blemish to the Lord. Why? Because one day John the Baptist would say, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin." the blameless, spotless Jesus. There is not one of us who have lived that kind of perfect, blameless life. Only Jesus. Who's allowed in the Lord's presence? The one who walks blamelessly. Number two, the one who works righteousness. The one who acts righteously. He walks blamelessly. He works she works righteously. Look at that in verse 2. He that walketh uprightly and 
worketh righteousness. This is the second major characteristic of the one who's permitted into the presence of God. And, and of course, works is talking about what we do, our actions. And what about righteousness? Worketh righteousness means that we do in our actions what is right and just, not according to our own standards. Because everyone has a little bit different standard, don't they? But according to God's standard of what's right, His established standards. And thankfully, David, I think, gives us some ideas of what it looks like to work righteously, to act righteously. Look at three things he says. Look at verse 3. Chapter 15, verse 3. It says in the second thing there, he does no evil to his neighbor. That's the first example given of someone who acts righteously. He does no evil to his neighbor. Now, in the Bible, of course, neighbor could mean the person that lives next door to you. As we think about neighbor, right? My neighborhood my neighbor that lives to the right of me, the neighbor that lives to the left of me, the neighbor that, neighbor that lives in front of me, or the neighbor that lives behind me. It certainly can mean that, but it's broader than that. In fact, this is what one Bible dictionary has to say. The person with whom one associates regularly or even casually without establishing close relations. Just the person that you come in contact with on occasion is your neighbor. And again, the person permitted into the presence of the Lord is someone who doesn't do anything harmful, destructive, or damaging to those that they live and work among. That's the first one. Look at the second one. Works righteousness means he doesn't give his money at interest. He does not give out money at interest. Look at chapter 15, verse 5. He that putteth not out his money to usury. Again, which is, means interest. He doesn't loan money to people who are in need and charge them interest and take advantage of them. That, that's the idea here. In fact, Gerald Wilson, to quote him again, says that when you look into the Old Testament, you find specific commands where Jewish people were not to charge interest to other Jewish people whenever they were loaning them money when they had need. There were times, in fact, we see this in Nehemiah 5.5, where some Jewish people were so poor and in such difficult circumstances that they were asking loans from people who are more wealthy with them. There's not a problem with that, but the wealthier were charging extraordinary interests and even starting to take the, these people as slaves and control their lives. The point of all this, and I hope you'll hear this carefully, the one that's accepted in God's presence is not seeking to profit off people's pain. I think there's a broader point here to make. Because, you know, you and I, there are a lot of different jobs that we can have in the world, aren't there? I mean, there's a, you just go on one of the websites that talk about job openings. There's a lot of them. You just drive up the street and you see there's all kinds of, of jobs and businesses. But, you know, not every company and not every business and not every occupation is noble that Christians should participate in. In fact, I'm a firm believer that Christians should seek to be in businesses that are win-win circumstances, not a circumstance in which 
I win because you lose. By the way, that's one of the biggest reasons why I'm not a fan of the lottery. Because the lottery is based upon people losing. And by the way, come in real close. 99.9% of them lose. And there, there are many other things that we could talk about. A way that people exploit others. Payday lenders, right? That can just charge exuberant interest to people in there. And taking advantage of people at their weakest and lowest moments. Wow. And I'm sure there are other ways in which we could consider this. We hate that we even have to bring things like this up, but if you've lived in this country or other countries, you know that there are times that people take advantage of others based on their ethnicity. That they'll work for lower amounts of money and they can take advantage of them because of that. God forbid that His own people would do that. That we would say, because you're of this race, because of you're of this culture, because your English is not well, because you're not highly educated. So we can make you do manual labor for us at pennies of what we would charge others because you're in such a vulnerable position. We can exploit you. We can abuse you to increase our wealth. That's kind of the idea when it says here he doesn't put his money out at interest. Thirdly, working righteousness means he doesn't take bribes against the innocent. You see that in chapter 15, verse 5. Nor taketh reward or bribe against the innocent. You know, again, Willem van Garem says that poor people in, their, in this day were often brought into the courts and taken advantage of by rich and powerful people. And the rich and powerful had the means to pay someone or hire someone and bribe someone in order to win the case, to bring some kind of accusation. And of course, the poor didn't have the means to fight back against such bribes. Well, of course, this is an evil practice. It's condemned in the Bible. Look at Exodus 23.8 at some time. You don't have to turn there now, but Exodus 23.8 says that, that God's people, His holy people, are not to accept bribes in order for them to profit. They're not to somehow pervert justice in order to make a dollar. In other words, we're to be more concerned about walking righteously than we are making money. Now, we have to make money. Again, we have to have livelihoods, but we want to make sure that we have noble work, that we have ethical jobs, that we're doing things in such a way that is righteous. And that we're not most concerned about making a dollar. We're most concerned about pleasing the Lord. Are you someone who works and does righteousness? Do your actions accord with God's standards of justice? How do you treat your neighbor? Do they have a legitimate grievance against you because you've harmed them in some way, because you've damaged them in some way? Maybe it's to their property that you have caused and you didn't fix. What about your actions related to money? Do you take advantage of people financially? Can you be bought? 
Would you be willing to pervert justice if the price is right? Sadly, it's why it's so hard to find good politicians in this world, isn't it? A man or a woman who just can't be bought. And by the way, that's on both sides of the aisle, isn't it? It 100% is on both sides. Again, but let's consider Jesus. We talked about His blameless walk, but now let's talk about His righteous works. In fact, hold your finger here at Psalm 15 and turn to 1 Peter 2.22. I want you to see this really quick. 1 Peter 2.22. The Apostle Peter, later on, reflecting on Jesus' life, talks about His suffering in verse 21 for us and His example that we should follow in His steps, verse 21. But verse 22 says, Who did no sin. Four words that speak a mouthful. Jesus who did no sin. You know what that means? He never once committed a sin. He never once did anything evil to his neighbor or to anyone. All of his actions were only and always just and righteous according to God's standards. He did no sin. Who among us today could say that? How many of us could step forward into that description to say, I have done no sin? None of us. Only the Lord Jesus can claim that. Last of all, so we've seen the walk of this person. He lives blamelessly. We've seen the works of this person. He acts, she acts Righteously, thirdly, the one who's permitted into the presence of the Lord speaks faithfully. Look at the last part of verse 2. This is Psalm 15. I'll give you a chance to turn there again. But Psalm 15, verse 2, here are the three main categories. He that walketh uprightly. Secondly, he that worketh righteousness. Third one, third main characteristic. And speaketh the truth in his heart. Now, many think that the phrase, in his heart, kind of refers back to what was mentioned a few chapters ago. Look at Psalm 12, verse 2. They speak vanity or emptiness, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. So the opposite of that is to speak truth in your heart. So those who flatter with their lips are actually speaking from a deceptive heart, not a truthful heart. They're not speaking sincerely, speaking vainly. But the one who is permitted into God's presence speaks the truth sincerely. Now, what does that mean exactly? He gives us some examples, right? He he gives us some specific things to say, oh, that's what it looks like. Look at it with me. Uh, Look at uh, Psalm 15, verse 3. He that backbiteth. I bet you've not said that word in a long time. Maybe ever, right? It's a really old English word. Backbiting. Have you ever said that even? Backbiting. I mean, that's what's happening in the nursery right now, right? The kids are biting each other in there, right? What does backbiting mean? It it means slander. That's what it means. It's actually a really interesting word. I don't want to bore you with all the details, but bear with me for a moment. Uh, The word can mean a couple different things. It actually means to move your feet. 
It was used in the Bible sometimes to talk about someone who would move or to tread on the ground, so they're moving. It's also frequently used to describe someone who's spying out enemy territory. So, uh, for instance, in the Old Testament, when it said that they, they sent some spies into the land of Canaan to spy it out, this is the word that they used. So move, to tread, to spy out. And then it can also be used as, it used, as it's used here to, to slander someone. But imagine if we put all three of those meanings together. It could refer to how we trample or tread on people with words by seeking or spying out some weakness or vulnerability in their lives in order to exploit them. I think that's kind of the idea of slander, that we're looking for something that's in some way a blemish on their record that we spread around to others. But look at the next one, he says, in the, I think it's in the same verse. He backbites not with his tongue, and then the last phrase of verse 3, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. You know what that means? It means that we bring up some disgrace from the past. Or Derek Kidner says it means that we're picking up something that's discreditable about someone in the sense of raking it up unnecessarily. Raking up something from someone's past in order to disgrace them. So the godly person who's permitted in the presence of the Lord is not trying to ruin someone's reputation or diminish their standing by bringing up something from the past which that person's ashamed of. Have you ever witnessed how that out in the world, people that don't know God and Christ how that there are some of them that they just devour each other. They will dig up anything and everything they can to use against others. In fact, to, to stay on some of the politics themes, that's why politics have become so nasty in our day. Because it's really, a lot of times, it's not about the policies or the competency even of the person. But it's really, who could be the last man or last woman standing after the slander campaign is finished. In fact, most of us should be glad that we grew up in an era where we weren't on social media. Because how many of us, when we were 15 or 13, would have put some kind of nonsense up on the computer that someone could have drug up three decades later and completely ruined our lives because of it? People will dig up things from decades ago and use it to ruin someone's life in a moment. Now, I want you to hear me well. I am not standing up here saying that there's never a reason to expose serious offenses that have happened in the past. I think there is a, a really important place for that. There certainly is a need to expose something that someone's done, even if it was done decades ago. If it's a serious offense, well, certainly... But there's also a very great need that all of us have of extending and receiving mercy for past blunders. I mean, think about it. How sad that someone's career could be completely ruined because of a foolish comment they made as a teenager. 
How many of you said something foolish as a teenager that you're glad your boss doesn't know about? Can I see your hand? My hand's up. Again, there are offenses that should not be overlooked no matter when they occurred, such as sexual abuse or something like that. I'm not saying that we should, you know, if we find out that someone three decades ago has committed some kind of sexual abuse, well, well sure, they shouldn't be in some kind of leadership position. But if we find out that someone three decades ago, when they were 15, said a derogatory word or did something, are we really going to try to drag this up to completely ruin this person's life? By the way, if we all do play that game, there'll be no man or no woman standing at the end. Christ alone will be standing at the end of that game. If every word you said, every thought you had, every action you committed was dug up from the past, you wouldn't want to be putting that on your LinkedIn account and on your record. Again, I'm not saying we should overlook every evil, but I am saying that the Bible does say and teach that there are, that there is something beautiful and godly and gracious and Christ-like to cover someone's offenses. Not cover up, but extend mercy to someone in their offenses. But you know, the sad thing is, is what happens so often in this world is that people dig up these things about others, not because they genuinely are concerned, but because they want to profit on someone else's loss, don't they? They're using it as an example to move themselves forward, to benefit themselves, to push themselves forward at someone else's expense. Listen to what 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says, Above all things have fervent charity or love among yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. Again, we talked about it and sang about it this morning. Our sins which are many, His mercy is more. Are you someone who speaks faithfully or do you slander others? Do you look for weakness in someone's life so that you can use it, maybe even in the most crafty ways, to discredit them? Maybe so you get the promotion and they don't. Maybe you just know just a word to say to your boss. You know, that person, they don't always show up on time. You know, that person, and maybe you find just some way to make sure that you're always staying in front of the competition. Maybe at work or school or in other relationships, so that we diminish other people and advance ourselves. And then, God forbid that we would dig up, bring up shameful things from people's past for the selfish motive of trying to stay ahead of them. So, we talked about the blameless walk of Jesus, the righteous works of Jesus, and then, really briefly, think about the faithful words of Jesus. Again, 1 Peter 2 22, who did no sin, neither was there any guile or deceit in his mouth. He never spoke a word of slander or said anything that was not true and faithful. And by the way, I've, I've chosen my words very carefully today. I said, 
speaking faithfully. Because how many of you know that sometimes we can say things that are true and it can still be slander? That we can say something that the facts are actually true about what this person did 20 years ago. This person really did do that. The facts are true. But it's not faithful speaking because we're doing it in a way to shame this person, to discredit them, to step on them so that we can climb forward. Jesus never did that. How many of us can say that we have never spoken a word of deceit, that it's never been found in our mouths? None of us can. Again, Jesus stands alone. What a perfect Savior. Well, look at the last sentence of this passage, and we'll finish here today. Look at verse 5, the last sentence. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. You know, there are many things about this psalm as we work through it that if you were to read the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you'd find a lot of similarities. The Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus is describing the characteristics and the lifestyle of those who belong to Him and will dwell with Him forever. But do you remember how the Sermon on the Mount ends? It ends with two houses built on two different foundations. One was built on sand and the other was built on rock. The house on the sand collapsed and fell while the house that was built on the rock was not moved. It stood. Look at Psalm 15, verse 5 again. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Do you remember what Jesus said to those? In, remember what Jesus said will be said to those at the end of the Sermon on the Mount whose lives are built on the sand? Depart from me. I never knew you you that work iniquity. They will not be permitted into the presence of the Lord. Now, there's one very wrong way for you to view this whole sermon today. Psalm 15, Sermon on the Mount, this whole message has not been in any way to say that God saves us if we're good enough. If we walk good enough and work good enough and speak good enough, God will save us. That's not what I'm saying today. That's not what the Bible says. Both of these passages, Psalm 15, the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, all of the Bible help us to see two things very important. Number one, as we read through Psalm 15, it strips any self-righteousness from us. We can't walk through Psalm 15 and say, yep, boy, do I deserve to be in God's presence. Man, I feel good enough that when God looks at me one day, He's going to say, yep, this person's good and perfect in my sight. No, both of these passages help us to see that we are bankrupt of righteousness in ourselves. That if God were to judge me based upon what I have done, I would most surely go to hell. It shows me, it shows us our need for Jesus and His grace. In fact, just consider who wrote the psalm. David. Did David walk a perfectly blameless life? He committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
Did he perfectly do righteous works? He had Uriah killed to keep his sin hidden. Were his words perfectly faithful words? He put a sealed letter in Uriah's hands with details to put Uriah in a position on the battlefield where he would be killed. None of us have measured up to what Psalm 15 says permits one into the presence of the Lord. The only one who has, the only one who's truly permitted in the Lord's presence is Jesus Christ, His Son. And all who are saved are saved by Jesus' merits, not their own merits. That's the first thing that Psalm 15 teaches us. But the last thing it teaches us is it describes the walk, the works, and the words of those who have experienced God's saving grace. In other words, here's the key. If God has saved you by His grace, it will show forth in your walk, in your works, and in your words. I mean, even the situation I mentioned about David, as despicable and evil as his actions were, it was not the pattern and norm of David's life. It was such a big deal. One of the reasons is because it was the exception, not the rule of his life. So much so that God called David a man after my own heart. And isn't it so good and kind of God that we're not defined by our worst evils that we've done? David sinned. Yes, he did. But David repented. And if you took a snapshot of that one instance and that was all you knew about David, you would say, oh, what a wicked man. But when you saw the movie of David's life from beginning to end, what you saw is obviously not a perfect person, but someone who walked blamelessly, who worked righteously, and who spoke faithfully. And so it is with all of us who are Christians. We have instances in our lives that we are deeply ashamed of. But the big picture of our life, God has saved us. He's changed us. So we walk blamelessly, work righteously, and speak faithfully. Will you bow with me for prayer here as we close our message here now? How is God speaking to your heart today from His Word? Here's the question. Who will be permitted into the Lord's presence? Will you be permitted both now and forever into the Lord's presence. Not by your works you won't. Not by your perfect blameless life that you have not lived or your perfectly flawless actions or always faithful words because every one of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you learn anything today from this message, I hope you walk away saying that if I'm going to be saved, I must be saved by Jesus, not by anything I can do. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you've never put your trust in Jesus to save you, trust Him now. Pray to Him right there where you're at. 
Confess that you are a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, that you need Him to be your Savior, to forgive your sin. He'll save you. He'll forgive you. He will change you. For those of us who have been saved, this passage is a call to us to say, Christ has saved me. He has given me His grace. He's changed me. And now, I need to live this way. I need to walk blamelessly. I need to work righteously. I need to speak faithfully. Father, we pray that for ourselves. We pray that through the transforming work that Jesus and His grace has done in us, that we would live as people who are permitted in Your presence. We have been permitted into Your presence because of Christ and His grace, not by our good works. But we want to walk worthy of the grace that you've given us. We want to walk blamelessly. We want to work righteously. We want to speak faithfully. Father, if there's any here today who don't know Christ, if they died today, they would hear those words, I never knew you. Depart from me. Oh God, today, draw them to repent of their sins, to trust in you to build their life on the rock of Christ and not on the sand. We pray it in Jesus' name.